So back in grade 12, I went on a school trip to Europe with a bunch of my classmates. Uh, we landed in Holland, because if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much, and we had our very own tour bus. Went through Belgium and France, Switzerland, Austria, Germany, and then back to Holland, because if you ain't Dutch, you ain't, you ain't much, you know? And um, it was an incredible trip. Looking back now, I have to tell you though, I think I squandered that opportunity just a little bit. I was a real immature 17-year-old. I'll save you some of the sordid details, but suffice it to say this, I don't remember most of the trip. There are two moments, however, that still stick with me. The first was visiting a concentration camp called Dachau, just outside of Munich in Germany. Dachau was a part of a system of camps set up by Adolf Hitler and the Nazis during the 1930s and 40s. It was to enact what they referred to as the final solution to the Jewish problem. And by the end of World War II, in camps like Dachau and Auschwitz and Buchenwald, six million men and women and little children were murdered. And I just remember walking out of the camp and getting on the bus. And as we got on the bus, it was just so quiet. And the heaviness of that moment, to be honest, broke through my 17-year-old immaturity. It broke through my bravado and trying to be cool. It was this overwhelming sorrow at the immensity of the loss. It was an overwhelming feeling of horror at what uh, the human face of pure evil really looked like. And I just remember after we were done, we all got on the bus and it was absolutely quiet on that bus. Which was crazy because it's just a bunch of grade 12 wing nuts, but there was just this deep silence. And then the silence was broken. Right at the front, uh, one of our classmates stood up he was a big, tall guy, captain of the basketball team, about six foot six, six foot seven. You couldn't really miss him. He stood up and he said, what a joke. The Holocaust never even happened. So he was at the front and I was sitting at the back seat. After he said that, I got up and I started to make my way towards the front, first in a walk and then a slow jog. And I had violent intentions. As I made my way to the front, one of the chaperones saw me and I think she knew what I was thinking. She yelled, Michael Manis? No. And I did a quick cost-benefit analysis on my way up to the front of the bus, and I thought that I didn't really want to get sent home early from the trip all by myself on an airplane. So when I got there, instead of my violent intentions, what I did is I stood up on my tippy toes and I got about a centimeter away from his face, and I just said this, sit the bleep down and shut the bleep up. So that's demonic, right? I'm not talking about my bad language, actually. I'm talking about that camp. It's interesting because we've been talking a lot over the last several weeks about the fact that you have an unseen enemy, the devil. In Revelation chapter 9, the devil is referred to as a destroyer. That's that camp. In John chapter 10, Jesus says the devil is a thief and he comes only to steal and kill and destroy, only to steal and kill and destroy. He's never had a compassionate moment. He's never had a kind thought. He is genocide. He is Holocaust. He is murder. He is rape. He is hatred. He is evil. What's that saying? The only thing necessary for evil to flourish is when good people do nothing. The only thing necessary for evil to flourish is when good people do nothing. 
And what's the most certain way that you can get good people to do nothing? Well, you convince them that the evil never happened or that it doesn't exist at all. And that brings me to the second memory I have of that trip. It was the next day, actually, in a hotel. I was walking down the hallway and I saw a whole bunch of my classmates gathered in one room. And so I went in to see what they were all doing and the basketball guy again, somewhere along the line, he had got a hold of a Ouija board. Okay, so him and a couple buddies were playing with a Ouija board and everyone else was gathered around watching. And I got in there and I saw that he was, what he was doing and I just said, you guys are a bunch of idiots. And I shook my head and I walked out. On my way out of the room, he called to me, ooh, Mike doesn't believe in Ouija boards. And it's interesting because at 17 years old, I most certainly was not a theological juggernaut or a philosophical heavyweight. I just said the first thing that came to my mind. I said, no, you don't get it. The same evil that you're invoking is the evil behind the camp that we just visited and I don't want anything to do with it. I was so angry, I walked out of the room and I headed the wrong way down the hallway. When I realized that my room was actually the other way, I turned around and started walking back and I saw that all my classmates were filing out of the room. It turns out they didn't want any part of it either. Let me tell you something that I think you already know. This world, it's not a playground. It's a battleground. You look around and you see the battles that are raging in the world. You look at your life and you see the battles that are raging in your life. And what the Bible suggests is that, that there's an unseen battle, a spiritual battle that serves as the foundation of all of those battles that you have a friend in Jesus and that Jesus has a plan for your life. He wants to orchestrate a soul level victory in your life, that you would see victory and that you would bring victory. In other words, that uh, you would experience joy and share it. You would experience hope and share it. You would experience love and share it. You would experience purpose and share it. You would experience forgiveness and share it. You would experience salvation and share it. You would experience courage and share it. That's his plan for your life. And you also have an enemy named the devil, and his plan for your life is a little bit different. He wants to orchestrate a soul-level defeat in your life. He wants you to see defeat and bring it. In other words, he wants you to experience brokenness and share it. Experience heartbreak and share it. Experience hatred and share it. Experience confusion and share it. Experience chaos and share it. That's a battle. And for that reason, we've turned our attention to the New Testament book of Jude. I would refer to Jude this way. It's like a tactical guide for winning in the battlefield of your life. It's a tactical guide for winning in the battlefield of your life. Jude says, yes, there is a battle and you need to be aware of it, but not afraid of it. See this friend that you have in Jesus, through his life and his death and his resurrection, he's defeated your enemy, the devil. Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. See, here's the deal. The, the devil is finished, but his defeat is not yet final. Let me say that again. The, the devil is finished, but his defeat is not yet final. So, so Jude writes this book and he says, um, this is a tactical guide for winning in the battlefield of your life. And if I had to summarize his message, in one short phrase, I would say this, that, that faith is the mechanism by which God's victory becomes your victory. 
Faith is the mechanism by which God's universal power is translated into personal strength. Before I jump into verse 11 of Jude, I wanna just take a second and say welcome to Southside Church Online. Let me put it this way. What an absolute honor and a privilege it is for me that you would welcome me into your place, wherever that place is. It's incredible. And I've been praying for you all week. I've been praying for strength. So why don't we do that right now? Dear God, I pray for strength for every man, for every woman, for every boy, for every girl, for every family that can hear the sound of my voice right now. I pray for strength. I pray for strength even in adversity. I pray for all those who are infected or affected by this coronavirus, affected physically or relationally or economically. I pray that you would give them strength even in the face of adversity. God, I thank you for the heroes that we see in our midst, for those who work in care homes, for the medical professionals, for the first responders. God, I, I pray is that as we celebrate them as we should, that the heroic in them would call out the heroic in us. As we would experience strength and share it with a world in desperate need. We pray this in your name. Amen. So Jude writes this tactical guide for winning in the battlefield of your life. And in verse 11, he says this, you gotta avoid rebellion. You gotta avoid the example of rebels. They have rebelled as Korah rebelled, and like him they are destroyed. They have rebelled as Korah rebelled, and like him they are destroyed. Well, to understand the rebellion of Korah, we gotta go back about 3,300 years. About 3,300 years ago, the Israelites, the Jewish people, were enslaved and in bondage and oppressed in Egypt. They cried out to God for help and God heard their cry. And he sent a man named Moses into Egypt. And God led Moses and Moses led the people of Israel. God performed a series of signs and wonders in Egypt that culminated in the Israelites leaving Egypt out of bondage and into freedom. Moses at the edge of the Red Sea holding up his staff, God parting the waters. They walked through the Red Sea on dry land. And then God led Moses with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And as God led Moses, Moses led the people. God supplied manna and quail to eat, water to drink. And then he brought them to Mount Sinai and Moses climbed the mountain and brought down the 10 commandments to the people, God's blueprint for their blessing. But somewhere along the line, this guy named Korah, so who was Korah? Well, Korah was one of the Jews that was in Egypt crying out to God for help. But somewhere along the line, Korah decided to rebel. And for the purposes of my sermon today, I want to define rebellion this way. Real simply, it is to tear down. Korah decided that he wanted to tear down. He wanted to tear down Moses and Moses' brother Aaron. He thought that they didn't have to listen to them anymore. So this is what Korah did. He began gossiping with a few close friends. And then eventually they began a grumbling campaign amongst all the Jewish people and they recruited 250 leaders to go on their side. They confronted Moses and Korah and his followers were destroyed. So Jude says, you want to win in this battlefield that is your life, avoid that kind of rebellion. And I think when we look at the rebellion of Korah, I, I see it for me in two levels. Rebellion against God because by that point in the nation of Israel, they knew clearly that following Moses meant following God. 
and, and rebellion against people. So I want to talk first about rebellion against God. Again, I, I define rebellion this way, to tear down. How do we tear God down? Well, Jesus said it this way in John chapter 8. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin, though, is a slave to sin. I want to talk to you about two different kinds of sin. Uncommitted sin and committed sin. Uncommitted sin is sin that happens in the spur of the moment. A moment of weakness. A burst of anger or impatience or unkindness or greed or selfishness. Committed sin is a little bit different. See, uncommitted sin, you, you feel bad for it, you repent and you move on. Committed sin is when you make a decision that um, you're going to tear God down in one area of your life. Okay, in other words, uh, you say, God, this is for someone who believes in God. God, you're big enough for me to trust you in this area. You're big enough for me to trust you in this area, in this area, in this area, but not this area. Not this area. I, 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 I just don't feel like I can trust you in this one area. And you commit to ignoring God's plan for your life in that one area. And here's the problem with doing that. When you close the door to God in a given area of your life, what happens is you open the door to the destroyer. You open the door to defeat. And so here's the question. Do you feel a soul-level defeat in your life right now? Here's how it manifests itself, by the way. It manifests itself with exhaustion, and not the kind of exhaustion that says, man, I just really need a nap, although naps are a great idea. But I mean, when you get to this point in your life and you say, I'm just tired of it. Tired of what? Just it. Maybe it's Another way that it can manifest itself is through dissatisfaction and fear. And I've seen so many people lately, I've watched so many people lately, and they say things like this. I really don't like where I am right now. But when I watch their lives, what I see is that's true. They don't like where they are right now, but they're scared to go someplace different. I really don't like who I am right now, but, but they're scared to become someone different. I really don't like what I'm doing right now, but I'm scared to go do something different. Dissatisfaction and fear, that's a soul level defeat. Confusion, I don't know which way to go next. Self-pity, you know, you know that you should try to look at life through a lens of gratitude, but it feels like over and over and over again, you keep just being drawn back to self-pity. That's a soul level defeat. Man, I think I can help you with that. What I want to suggest to you is that if at the soul level right now you're feeling defeated in your life, here's what you need to do. Go back to the last clear thing that God told you to do and do it. Okay? I, I think that's so important. I want to ask you, if you're on the chat right now, do me a favor. Find some eyeglasses emoji, okay? And post them. Because you need to go back to the last clear thing that God showed you to do and do it. The last clear thing he showed you when you were reading your Bible when you were discussing with friends, or when you were on Southside Church Online or listening to another sermon, the last clear thing that God told you to do, and do it. And if you say to me, I don't remember the last clear thing that God told me to do, this is what I would suggest, this is what you need to ask him. God, please give me ears to hear. 
it's amazing because if there is an area of your life that God has spoken into and you've said, God, not so fast, and you've closed that door to God in that area, what's happened is you've opened the door to the destroyer. You've opened the door to defeat. Sometimes it seems unrelated. The defeat you're feeling and, and, and what God's asking you to do, but step out in faith. Remember years ago, a young man sat down with me and we had a meeting. A meeting was this thing that we used to have in the old days when two people would get in a room and talk with one another. Okay, that's a meeting. So anyways, we, we had this meeting and, and he says to me at the beginning of the meeting, he's like, you know what I love about you, Mike? You're just such a straight shooter. I'm like, well, thank you. You know, so we did some small talk. He's like, okay, Mike, I'm about to shoot straight. Are you ready? I'm like, I'm ready. And he says, Southside music is going downhill. I'm like, okay, uh, explain. He says, yeah, you know what? Like a while ago, uh, when I would come and the, and the music would play, man, I just felt God in the music. I felt him speaking to me, encouraging me, giving me direction and giving me hope. And lately, crickets, nothing, completely silent. Like they're still competent, but they're just not preparing. Like something's going on. I said, you know what I love about you? You're a straight shooter. I'm about to shoot straight with you. Are you ready? He said, yeah, I'm ready. I said, remember a few months ago we sat down and you told me how you were having sex with your girlfriend? He said, yeah, I remember that. And remember how at that time I asked you if you trusted God and you said you did, that you really trusted him. And, and I said, okay, well, do you know that, that, that God says that his plan for sex is that people have sex in marriage? And you said, absolutely. And I said, well, why won't you trust him with this? And you said, I'm just not there yet. I said, man, I think God is speaking to you through the music. And I think his message is pretty clear. It's this. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. He's big enough to trust in every area. See, when we trust God, that's called faith. You know what faith is? Faith is the mechanism by which God's victory is translated into our victory. Faith is the mechanism by which God's universal power is translated into personal strength. So if you're feeling defeated right now, if you're feeling exhausted, if you're feeling dissatisfied or fearful, if, you, if you're feeling uh, self-pity or confusion, go back to the last clear thing that God told you to do and do it. Maybe you need to ask one person, man, would you pray for me? Because I need strength to do this. Maybe what it will be is it'll be forgiving someone who's hurt you. You've been holding on to that offense, you know, and the Bible calls that bitterness. And the problem with bitterness, we've all heard it. The problem with bitterness is like drinking rat poison, waiting for the person who hurt you to die. And it doesn't work because you're just hurting yourself. And the Bible says we need to forgive as we have been forgiven. It doesn't say you need to trust them, but you need to let go of your painful past so you can take hold of today. Or maybe for you, it's radical faithfulness. Radical faithfulness. So you're married and, and the Bible calls for married couples to be radically faithful to each other. But lately, you've been dabbling in unfaithfulness in your imagination, online, on social media, in actuality. It's time to repent. <laughs> it's time to stop thinking that the grass is greener on the other side and start watering your own lawn, start investing in your own marriage. Or maybe the last clear thing that God told you to do is to become real. You've been pretending to be someone you're not for a long time now. 
And the problem with that is that God can't heal the person you're pretending to be. And people can't know and people can't love the person that you're pretending to be. And, and it's time to take that incredibly courageous step and, and say to God and say to the world, here's real me. Or maybe for you, it's you've been living in like tight-fisted fear. And, and God's asking you to step out with faith-filled generosity. In other words, to experience his blessing and to share it with others. I'm telling you, man, if you want to walk towards victory, your next step is go back to the last clear thing that God told you to do and do it. Because faith is a mechanism by which God's universal power is translated into your personal strength. And on that note, I have an exciting announcement I want to make right now. We are going to do a baptism. We are going to do a baptism because we realize that eventually we're going to be meeting all together again, but we don't know exactly when that is going to be, so it's time to have a baptism. We can't wait any longer. You say, Mike, how are we going to do a baptism on Church Online? I have no idea. Well, when are we going to do it? I don't know yet. You know, what's it going to look like? Not sure. I know this for sure, though. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be awesome. And I could sit here and I could tell you a lot about baptism. I could tell you that uh, baptism is a symbol. Right, that we go down into the water in baptism. It's like, I was dead in my sins, but I've, made a I've, made, I've been made alive in Christ. It's a symbol, but it's also a statement. The statement is simple. I'm not perfect, but I've been forgiven. I've been saved. I've been redeemed by a perfect Savior. And it's a celebration. But really for me right now, the reason why I think it's time for us to announce that it's a baptism is baptism is also a clear step of faith. A clear step of faith. The Bible says, believe and be baptized. It's a clear step of faith. And faith is a big deal because faith is a mechanism by which God's universal power is translated into personal strength. And I wanna give you the chance to do that. If you believe in Jesus, not if you're perfect, Jesus is perfect, so you don't have to be. If you believe in Jesus and you have yet to be baptized, here's what I need you to do right now. I need you to text the keyword DUNK, D-U-N-K, to 604-670-3040. Or you can just put it right on the chat where you're watching. You can put it on the uh, message box on southsidelife.com, however you want to do it. Let's go. Let's get signed up. I guarantee you this, this is going to be the most memorable, the most unique baptism in the history of Southside Church. Okay? And I want, to, I want to give everyone the opportunity to take that step of obedience, go back to the last clear thing that God told you to do and do it. Because when you open the door to God in whatever area of your life it is, you close the door to defeat. Okay? So we want to avoid rebellion against God and we want to avoid rebellion against people. We don't want to tear people down. It's interesting, this story of Korah because Korah and his little buddies, they're gossiping about Moses. They're grumbling about Moses. They want to have a showdown with Moses. And Moses hears about it. And in Numbers 16, he says to them, man, you guys, we got to talk. You got to come talk because this isn't going to end well. And this is what they say to Moses. We're not coming. Isn't it enough that you yanked us out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? And now you keep trying to boss us around. Face it, you haven't produced. You haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey. You haven't given us the promised inheritance of fields and vineyards. 
You'd have to poke our eyes out to keep us from seeing what's going on. Forget it. We're not coming. And when I read that, man, I, I, I think there's three stages to tearing somebody down. Gossip, resentment, and war. Gossip, resentment, and war. The first stage is gossip, of course. Isn't it interesting how weird gossip can get? It can be a true thing that you say to the wrong person about somebody else, but often it's truth that's twisted. <laughs> what do they say here? You tore us out of a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's the question. Was Egypt a land flowing with milk and honey? It certainly was. For the Egyptians, not for the Jews. It meant slavery and bondage. See, here's the problem with gossip. Remember I said earlier that Revelation 9 says that uh, the devil is a destroyer. Well, when you gossip, you play the role of small d destroyer. All right? Because when you gossip about somebody, you destroy their reputation just a little bit. You destroy their influence just a little bit. You, uh, you destroy their future just a little bit. And, and when you become a small d destroyer, you cooperate with the capital D destroyer. And whether you know this or not, or not, you invite his activity into your life. That's gossip. And the next step of tearing somebody down is resentment. If I could just define resentment really clearly would be this. You start to cheer against people. You wish them ill. You just start to cheer against people. So in other words, you know that you're tempted to resent someone when you hear that something good happened to them and your first thought is a negative thought. Or you hear that something bad happened to them and your first thought is a positive thought. And I want to really tell you, um, we're all tempted to be resentful. We really are. But, but I want to encourage you with something. Just because you have a thought doesn't mean you need to think about it. Just because you have a thought doesn't mean you need to lean into it. So when you hear that something good happened to somebody and your first thought is disappointment or sadness, you need to stand up against that. You need to say, no, the Bible says, I rejoice with those who rejoice. I celebrate with those who celebrate. And, and, and I weep with those who weep and I mourn with those who mourn. That's how I roll. Because what happens if you start weeping when others celebrate and you start celebrating when other people are weeping, well, now you're a little D-destroyer and you're welcoming the activity of the capital D-destroyer into your life. And of course, the third stage is just war. Now it's you and me. One of us is going to lose. Let's do this. Now, I say that to you today on Southside Church Online because gossip is a big deal in the church. In fact, it wasn't until I became a Christian and started attending church that I really saw gossip. I remember when I was just a young guy, I was co coaching sports at a small private school, and I got a call one day from the head of a prayer chain at a local church, and they said, I just thought I should let you know the prayer request I just got in. The, the prayer request went something like this. Please pray for Mike Manis. He has terrible character. He cares way too much about sports, and all he wants to do is win. That was the first time. I, I had heard jokes before how Christians can take, take a prayer request and turn it into gossip, but that was the first time it had ever happened to me. But for me, I never really got a pure picture of gossip until I became the lead pastor of a church. 
After I became a lead pastor of the church, I had the opportunity to experience that feeling. Maybe you've had this happen to you before, where you walk into a room and everybody's talking real loud and you open the door and you walk in and all the, all the talking, boom, dumb, hush. And, and you know what? I'm not a genius, but I'm pretty sure in that moment that what they were talking about before I walked in wasn't whether or not the Oilers were gonna make the playoffs this year, you know? As an aside, I would just like to say this. Isn't it amazing how after like 100 years of missing the playoffs, the Oilers are having a great season on their way to making the playoffs, and the season got, and I know, I know there's more things to worry about than that, but I just find it ironic that the season got canceled when we were just about to make the playoffs. Okay, time back in. And I wonder to myself, why is gossip so prevalent in the church? I think one of the reasons might be I think maybe the church is, is full of nice people. <laughs> and so if you're a gossiping person, maybe you can go your whole life and not really get confronted for it. It was interesting because when I first became a lead pastor, I became tempted when people were gossiping about me um, to introduce them to Red Deer Mike. Not prison Mike, but Red Deer Mike. You know, Red Deer Mike is the guy that said on the bus to that guy, uh, sit the bleep down and shut the bleep up. Now, I never said that to anybody. I did have some interesting conversations. I'll share that another time. But I found something happening to me, and this is really, really important. I found something happening to me. I became very tempted to start to resent people. And then I became very tempted to start to go to war with people. And that's a major issue, and I want to explain it. In, in Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul reminds us of this. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, like Jesus said this, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't stand against it. In other words, my purpose for existing is to be part of this movement that Jesus established called the church. What do we do? We bring help. We bring hope. We bring strength. We bring love. We bring joy. But I'm walking around through life and I'm facing some of this stuff and I'm like, build my church or beat you up. I got a new mission. I like that mission better. That's how quick it can happen. Build his church or beat you up. I think, I think I'll beat you up. And that's how quick it happens. And that's why, by the way, you look around at so many churches throughout history and you ask yourself, why are they only about the things that they're against and never, be, never about what they're for? That's why. That's why, because so somewhere along the line, they lost their mission. They, they, they were living to bring help and they were living to bring hope and they were living to build his church, but somewhere they got sidetracked. I really think that's the heart of why churches end up being against stuff. You know, like just over the last two weeks, I've heard that there's been some Christians and some churches saying that the coronavirus, for example, is God's judgment on the sins of the world. Okay. So if that's something that you said, I wanna help you, okay? So first of all, stop saying that. And the reason I say stop saying that is because you don't really believe that. No, I, I'm not being silly. You really don't believe that. 
when you say it, this is what you really believe. You believe that it, the coronavirus is God's judgment on people who have different sins than you have because we're all sinners, right? So, so it sounds kind of weird coming out of your mouth though, doesn't it? The coronavirus is God's judgment on people who sin in different ways than me. That doesn't sound right. You know that doesn't sound right. And maybe I should remind you of something that I think you know. Uh, the judgment of God, the wrath of God, the justice of God for the sins of the world was already poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. But it can happen so fast. So, so we're here and, and, and we're supposed to be, you know, building help and building hope. And next thing you know, we've, we're, we're diverted and we have a new vision, mission. And next thing you know, all it is, it's about what we're against. It's really important. Back at the end of January, three and a half months ago, feels like about 10 years ago. I was having a meeting with a friend of mine. A meeting, back, so back in the day, we used to, I'm just so uh, I was meeting with this guy, awesome guy, great dad, great husband, loves Jesus, successful in his career, but I know something about him, and, and he knows that I know it. He was actually raised by a dad who literally, I think, never spoke a single positive word to him ever. And so when I get together with him, I'll almost always ask him this question. Hey, are you encouraging your kids? And the last time we were hanging out at the end of January, he said, I can't. I said, well, what do you mean you can't? He said, when I go to speak encouragement, it feels like Japanese and I can't speak Japanese. And it got me thinking a little bit about you. See, where do we learn language? The first place we learn language is at home. And I don't know what kind of language you learned at home. Maybe you learned discouragement and degradation and disdain. Maybe those were the languages spoken in your house. And I want to pray for you just the same as I prayed for this guy. I want to pray that, that God would give you ESL. ESL, encouragement as a second language. Encouragement as a second language. Look, I know you got it in you. It's, it's part of who you were born to be. See, way back in the beginning, God spoke the universe into existence. Listen to this. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be planets and stars and oceans and mountains and forests and lakes. Let there be lions and tigers and zebras and leopards and moose and deer and squirrels. And God said, let there be sharks and whales and dolphins. Let there be eagles and hawks and sparrows. And they were. They were. And then God built you. God said, God said let there be people. In his own image, he created us. Male and female, he cre created us. And I need you to know something. You've been built by a builder. You've been built by a builder in his image to build others up. You got it in you. The stakes are high, but you got this. The tallest trees in the world are known as the giant sequoias in California. 
They're, they're also called the redwoods. And, and the tallest of these tall trees actually has a name, General Sherman. Uh, General Sherman tree is 270 feet tall. It's 102 feet around. It weighs, listen to this, it weighs 3 million pounds. And so you think to yourself, like a tree this big, 270 feet high, 3 million pounds, how deep must those roots go to hold that thing up, right? You know how deep they go? 10 feet deep. You say, that's impossible. I know it is. It's impossible. And yet here's this tree, General Sherman. Been around for 2,500 years, growing to a height of 270 feet and 3 million pounds with roots that only go 10 feet deep. Against the wind and the storms and the earthquakes and the floods, it stood. 2,500 years. Its roots go 10 feet deep. That's impossible. Except for this. Something you need to know about redwoods. They grow real they go real close together. And what happens is all of their roots, they link with the roots of the trees beside them. And they share nutrients. And quite literally, quite literally, listen, they hold each other up. Like, is that amazing or what? In fact, on the chat right now, do you want to do me a favor? Give me a handshake emoji on the chat. You know, that's where the handshake comes from, right? The idea that we're supposed to hold each other up. I just made that up. I have no idea where handshakes come from. We're not allowed to shake hands anymore anyway, so who cares? I, I made something. But, 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 but you, you understand what I mean? There's just something so powerful about that. Because that's you and that's me, right? Like the wind and the storms and the earthquakes and the floods, we need each other. We hold each other up. We stand, listen. We stand together. We win together. I'm going to ask you a question. But before I do, I want you to do me a favor. Can you please stay tuned to the end of the message today? I'm kind of winding it up, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm winding it up. But I got two awesome next steps for you that I want to share with you at the end. So stick around, okay? But here's my question before I go any further. How are you doing? I know I've been asking that a lot in the last few sermons, and that's because I really want to know, how are you doing? And I wonder specifically for you, when I talk about this soul-level defeat, can you relate? Kind of this feeling of exhaustion. Or this feeling where, where you feel dissatisfied but scared to do anything about it. Are you there? Or maybe you just feel full of self-pity and you can't break out of it, or just confusion. See, I don't think you need to live another second in defeat. And I want to tell you that your first step to victory is the biggest step, and it's already been taken by Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, stepped. He stepped into human history for you. He died on a cross, and he rose again. And, and, and your next step is just to accept that gift step into victory. And there's a, lot, there's a lot more journey to go where you can step further and further into his victory, but your first step is, is to invite him to be the Lord and Savior of your life. So if that's you, if you want to break out of defeat and into victory today, I want to pray for you right now. I just invite wherever you are all over the world right now, would you please just pray with me? 
Dear Jesus, thank you for stepping into human history for me. Jesus, I ask you to be my savior. I pray that you would forgive my sins. I put down all my shame and all my guilt and all my regret, and I walk away freely and lightly. And I thank you that you rose again. Jesus, I pray that you would be my Lord, that you would give me victory, that you would step by step show me the way into the life that I was meant to live. Thank you, thank you, thank you, in your name. Amen. Amen. Man, if that's you, if you just prayed to invite Jesus Christ into your life for the first time today, that's incredible. I need you to do me a big favor. Just text the keyword life. You can text it on the chat. You can text it to 604-670-3040. You can text it on southsidelife.com, however you want to do it. We don't want to stalk you, but you better believe we want to support you. Okay. I said I, said I had two next steps for you before I left. So here they are. So if you're sitting with a group of people right now, I would love it if you would discuss these two next steps. If you're watching alone, that's fine. I, I would just like you to think about these two next steps, okay? Here they are. Number one, what is the last clear thing that God told you to do? Are you ready to do it? And number two, who is someone that you think you should build up? No, no, no. I want, to, I want to say that different. Who is somebody that you get to build up? Or maybe five people, or maybe 10 people, because we stand together and we win together. So who is somebody today, this week, that you can be building up? Who are five people today, this week, that you can be building up? I love you guys. We'll see you next week.